Thank you all. Hope you have a Bible. And if you do, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. I'm going to open up with a read from 27 through 31 of that chapter. We're going to jump around a few places this morning as we kind of uh, have a, a, a wide-ranging uh, topic to, to uh, look at today from this scripture uh, around a subject that I think uh, we'll all benefit from and, and, uh, and find some help from. But I want to begin by reading from Isaiah 40. Um, Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. One of my favorite passages of Scripture, if it isn't one that you've committed to memory or at least put a marker and highlighted out in your Bible, I encourage you to do that because this is one that you should uh, frequently visit and I think can offer a lot of inspiration to us all. So God's Word says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim as passed over by my God. Have you not known and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God asked you a question that I think I already know the answer to, but let me just put it out there for y'all. Have you ever been so impatient that you ruined a great surprise for yourself? Now, now maybe you have the patience of Job, as it's often said, uh, and, and you've never, ever uh, ran out and, uh, and spoiled a surprise for yourself. But, but maybe there's been a delightful moment that was waiting for you, being prepared for you, but you just didn't have the patience. And you might would describe it as something different because impatience is such a negative word, a heavy word, but that's what it is. It, it's just that we're impatient. Have you ever been so impatient that you ruined what would have been a great surprise? And maybe you're a killjoy like I can be sometimes. And you were like, you, you would say, I don't want to be surprised. And, and, and pity on people like us that often does, don't want to be surprised. We do. We just want to act tough. Um, but, but all of us, I think, have been so impatient that we ruined or spoiled what would have been and what many were trying to make a big surprise or a delightful moment for us. Now, I think we all could share handfuls of stories uh, on this prompt uh, for several minutes apiece or several uh, for, for a while apiece. Probably what makes this the most or the quickest, uh, what bring, we brings to mind the quickest or the, or the most often when we think about this question is we remember those birthdays or those Christmases where our curiosity and our excitement just got the best of us uh, and we just couldn't help ourselves. Uh, whether to look somewhere we shouldn't have looked or, or just to, to uh, uh, if you're like me, beg to get a gift earlier than you were supposed to get it. So I've got a story to tell when this happened to me. And, and I know sometimes my stories are often rooted in nostalgia and sentimentality, but that's just me. Uh, and, and hopefully they humor you a little bit. If not, we'll move on pretty quickly after it. But uh, I have, uh, I have a, a gift that I, I was really having trouble waiting for. Probably have a lot of gifts I could share this story about, but this one particularly stands out in my mind. So I, I don't know what you were doing in the, in the late 90s in the summer. Some of you weren't here yet. Some of you were, were probably dealing with much more mature and serious stuff than, than I was as, as an eight-year-old about to turn nine. But for my ninth birthday, I desperately wanted a new Game Boy. And of course, you probably all are all familiar with, with those. If you aren't, right, today we have electronics like iPhones and tablets and all kinds of fancy things that our kids get their hands on and can do anything they want to with. But back in the 90s, all we had were these black and white LCD things. We had we had the Game Boy, the, the old uh, uh, gray brick, as it were. We had these little tiger electronics that had those static images on the screen and you would just see little things go back and forth. Uh, Caroline had a cop, had one of those little mermaid ones and I played that quite a bit until I finally got a, a Game Boy and it wasn't really black and white. It was like a green, a green color, like a cabbage green screen. It was not easy to see um, even in the daylight and good luck if it was dark because you weren't going to see it at all. Um, so yeah, there was no backlight on these devices. You, you barely could see the picture that was on uh, uh, the black and white 
display and you, you could go through a grocery store at the checkout and you would see these $10 LCD games uh, that were uh, for sale and they would have you know, race cars or ping pong, you know, pinball or something like that on them. Um, this, was, this was living it up back in the 90s or late 80s, 90s. If, if you wanted to have some fun electronically, you didn't have all the, the fancy things that uh, people had now, right? There was no Candy Crush, but there was Tetris. And I think everybody probably has seen or, or, or at least played a game inspired by Tetris, uh, at least. Um, so I had one of these uh, black and white... Uh, uh, or green Game Boy uh, screen, the green screen Game Boys, but a new one had came out when when I had just turned um, eight, uh, uh, not eight, eight years old, and, and I missed it just a few by, by a few months for my birthday. Uh, but a new one come out that was going to have color graphics, no light, but hey, we'll, we're going to take take what we can get back then. Uh, but uh, there was all kind of new games for it. So for my birthday, 1999, all I wanted was a new Game Boy. Particularly, I wanted a teal one uh, because I thought that color was pretty pretty neat. There was no blue one, so I had to settle for teal, and, and that was close close enough. So uh, I asked, and I asked, and I asked, and I probably drove my mom crazy that summer because I, 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 she finally told me that she got me one, and it, I just had to wait to get it. And that's the worst thing to tell your kids, that, hey, it's in the house somewhere. You just have to wait a few more weeks. And I don't know exactly if it was July, if it was August, it was close enough to my birthday that mom finally just gave in and said, okay, here, um, you, you can have it. So it was probably late July when finally um, I got, got what I had been wanting. Uh, and not just I got this, I got a brand, I got the, the new copy of Super Mario Brothers. Um, you probably have played it on your TV back in the 80s, but now um, it was finally on, um, Chris, bring that up. Oh, he's gone. Okay, now you can finally bring it. Here it goes. Um, now you can finally bring it on the go with you, right? And, you know, Mario's great, but it's even better when you can take it everywhere with you. So, uh, for my ninth birthday, I got this Game Boy and a copy of Mario Brothers, and I was in heaven. Now, if you wonder why I tell these stories, I know they're not very serious, right? Most pastors talk about fishing or hunting or big, you know, big manly stuff. I talk about stuff like this because the Bible says to give glory to God with your whole life, and this is my, this is my life, and, and I haven't been here that long. So, I got to give glory to God with whatever I've got to, to do it with. So, um, but, but you know something, you know something, um, as I got older and, and birthdays became less special and just receiving gifts in general lost their sense of wonder uh, as that happens when you grow up. Um, I think back to that summer when I got this gift and I got to be honest, I feel a little guilty, I feel a little guilty. Now, I don't have a tremendous weight of guilt. You know, there's worse things, right? And there's actual guilt to deal with. So I'm not trying to make light of actual guilt that we deal with. But I feel guilty when I think about that birthday. Not because anybody in my family ever gave me a hard time. Not because anybody, you know, you know made fun of me or said, oh, you couldn't wait. But, but you know, I, I, it's just that I always regretted spoiling the surprise. Something in my mind, I always thought I just should have waited. I just should have played along and waited until... My birthday. Now, every time I think about my childhood birthdays, when I come across this thing, and I, I keep it on my, not too far away from my desk, just to remind me um, that <laughs> what did I gain from not waiting? Yeah, I got a few days of early access, but was it worth it? Now, for me as a nine-year-old, it was definitely worth it. But, and maybe you'd agree when you were sleuthing around and you found a Christmas gift before you should have or a birthday gift before you should have. Uh, or maybe you became the most annoying person in the world because you just wanted to have a gift on the 22nd instead of the 24th or 5th um, come December. Uh, but, but when you think back to those, those moments, maybe you're like me and you feel a little bit of guilt for just not waiting like you should have. Here's the thing, though. Our impatience isn't limited to these harmless circumstances, is it? I mean, those stories are cute and those stories are fun to tell and they don't really hurt anybody and they don't really definitely don't really do anything to our own lives. But our impatience isn't limited to these harmless circumstances like getting a gift a couple days early. If it was, it'd be no big deal. But those episodes from our younger years really are just primers for later in life when our impatience takes on a whole other form. Let me, let me say this, though. It's not always a gift that brings out our impatience. Sometimes it's a process that's out of our hands. We insist on knowing every little detail of. Have you ever been the person that just had to know everything? You had to know what was going on behind the scenes. You couldn't just passively observe and experience something. You had to know the ins and the outs and the, and the background and the mechanics of it all. And, and this is why 
You can't surprise some people because the spirit of surprise can't be appreciated by them. They get too hung up on the variables that others, a lot of us, couldn't care less about. Now, maybe you're one, you were one of those kids. Maybe you're one of those adults um, uh, that, that just can't wait and that just can't help themselves but to try to know as much as you can as quick as you can. Now, another way this shows up for us uh, is those of you that can't wait until you to finish a book, but you have to read the latter chapters before you even get done with the earlier chapters. Maybe you've watched a movie or a series before, and you have to look up how the story unwinds because you just can't wait. You just can't help yourself. Now, we all know the person, maybe you are the person that loves to spoil things, loves to read ahead and, and figure out what's going on before you're supposed to know what's going on. And again, if, if the worst thing that, that we ever do is read the last chapter of a book before we get done with it, that's okay. But uh, we, we often just can't wait in the more serious areas of life. Our impatience and insistence on looking behind the curtains aren't contained to these lighthearted moments from our past or from our younger years. There's something in all of us, there's something in all of us that struggles with the seasons of life, the situations in life, where where we're at and where we want to be are separated by an unknown, probably, but we don't know. But we assume, and we often assume the worst. Remember when you were a kid and someone told you, you were asking, hey, when's it going to be my birthday? When's it going to be Christmas? When are we going to get there? And they would tell you a couple of days, a couple of weeks, and that would feel like an eternity to you. But often in our more serious seasons of life, our more frustrating seasons of life, whenever we are trying to sort through where we are at and where we want to be at, that idea that we don't know how long it's going to take to get us there, that can seem insufferable, can it? I doubt anyone likes being far away from where they want to be at, but for some of us, we especially struggle with the wait. The process of waiting leaves us restless and anxious. Can anybody relate to that? I'm sure you can. Everybody here has waited on something before. It could be something that you have dreamt of your entire life. It could be something that you, that you were told, hey, this is going on and you've got to have this test, but it's going to be a wait between now and then and you didn't even know you had the problem, but now the problem exists, but also another problem exists, the wait. I mean, it could be something, something that you are very excited about, something you're very dreadful over and very upset over and, and, and worried over, but the wait is the same, right? The wait is a burden in and of itself. All of us have waited and we often are left restless and anxious as a result. We all express our restlessness and our anxiousness in a little different in, 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 in different ways though some people are actively audibly always worrying you know those people that you, you know you could just see it on their face and, and not again not not being mean or not being rude but you, some people right when we worry it's just all over us you, you can't hide it it's not like something we just kind of deal with compartmentally in the back of our minds I mean when you're worrying over something that you're waiting on or you're trying to sort through I mean you can read it on our faces Others try to suppress whatever they're going through, and it just kind of makes them chaotic and reckless. Often, the, the seasons of our life when, we're, when we make the worst decisions or the most foolish decisions, it's because in the back of our minds, we're struggling over something that we can't have yet or we, won't, but we can't get a hold of yet. We're waiting over something that we just don't understand, and it causes us or it leads us into making decisions that are just kind of uh, reckless. Impatience or restlessness often leads to impulsive, careless actions. Now, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. You know this. You know this about yourself. You really especially know this about your kids or your grandkids. You've watched them and you think, you know, you're, you're making impulsive decisions. You're making careless decisions because you're impatient. You're restless. But no, we're all like this. Our impatience and our restlessness leads to impulsive and careless actions and they almost always lead us to and leave us with regret. I guarantee it, and, and this is true for all of us, our, the, the seasons of our life that we're most regretful of are the seasons of our life when we were waiting on something or we're trying to sort through something, we're hoping that they change, we're hoping that this situation changes, we're hoping that we can change, but the wait is taking too long, and while we're trying to sort through the wait and get to where we want to be, or get for, for them to get where we want them to be, while we're waiting it out, we start making some decisions that we are by no means proud of in hindsight. Impatience leads to impulsive and careless actions. And those impulsive and careless actions leave us with regret. 
For so many of us, though, we're all in a between. We're all in between chapters in the story that is our life. Every one of us are are are, are going out of one chapter into another. We don't even realize it sometimes. We're all in between prayers prayed and prayers answered. And there's a thing in us, that nature in us, that caused us to beg and to nag our parents for gifts early when we were kids. That makes us read the last chapter of the book when we're just 10 pages in that ruins the prizes our loved ones try to set up for us. That same impatience, that same restlessness rears its head in much more serious situations and seasons of our life. And it results in much greater regrets than just feeling bad over a gift that you opened a day early. Because here's what happens. When our life is in a waiting period, when we're in the waiting rooms of life, when we've prayed a prayer and the answer is somewhere between heaven and here, we are very, very, very vulnerable. Now, nobody, somebody, some, maybe you've never been told this before. Maybe you've never been, this has never been communicated to you and, and you didn't realize you were as vulnerable as you were until you went and did some things that you now regret. Or you went and, and weren't patient with the process. But when you are in a waiting period, when you are in a waiting room of, in a season of life, you are very vulnerable. Because God wants us to wait and trust and rest in him. But we feel like these options are totally insufficient, unacceptable, and irrational ask of us. When God says, I want you to trust me, we say, God, I don't know if that's sufficient for me. God says, I want you to wait on me. We think, I don't think that's an acceptable command. Wait? I mean, how long am I going to have to wait? I, I can't just sit here and live in this unknown period of time. When God says, I want you to rest in me, we think there's no way I can rest at all. That's irrational of you to tell me or to ask of me. Flying in the face of this, how God wants us to feel and what we feel like, flying in the face of this, and perhaps exactly because of this, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of passages in the Bible that speak to us in these various seasons of life, and they compel us to wait and trust and rest. We opened our Bibles to Isaiah 40 today, where the prophet Isaiah is talking to a nation of Israel that is in a crisis as he writes this, as God speaks this through him, the nation is surrounded by its enemies and they are tempted to make an alliance with a foreign power that is not one that God would have them to make, but they're tempted to make this alliance because they feel like that's their only way to win this battle they're in. They're wondering, how are we going to overcome this war? How are we going to face this enemy? All the while, the temple has been boarded shut by the pagan king. There is so few options for the people of Israel. And God comes to them and says, I know how bad it looks and I know how bad you feel. I know the weight of this burden and I understand that you don't really like the weight that you're in. But have you forgotten who I am and who I've been? And often we hear that and we just think we roll our eyes and we think, I know who you are, God, but I'm waiting for you to be that God right now, right here where I'm at. And God's response isn't, isn't without compassion, it's not without love, it's not without mercy, but it's often just wait. I promise you, you'll see. But you're going to have to wait a little longer. Another passage that is right up there with Isaiah 40 that I want you to flip to is Proverbs chapter 3. If you would turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 3. We probably have memorized these verses when we were in Sunday school as children, uh, but Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Solomon, David's son, wrote uh, a book of wisdom to his, uh, to his uh, sons and to his, uh, the generation of boys coming up uh, in his kingdom, and, and he gave them probably the best advice he could ever give them that probably has resonated with all of us at some point in our life and should be a memory verse or two that we have tucked away. Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So again, in the moment, in the wait, that can sound so hollow. Just trust me, God says. Lean not on your own understanding. As I know you're worried, you're, th you're thinking up every possible scenario that this could go wrong. And, 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 and some of you, you're in situations where you don't know how much longer you can wait. 
Because of circumstances surrounding you that's putting pressure on you that is hard to even express. And God's word comes to us and says, trust in him. Lean not on how you see things and how you feel about things. And of course, if we don't have our own feelings, then what do we have? But God says, you need to lean not to what you are thinking, but lean on me in all your ways. As in, in every situation that you feel like I'm not in and I'm not working in, I need you to give those to me and trust that I am doing something. You just can't see it yet. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will lead you. He will direct you. One more verse I want you to turn to on this topic, Psalm 46. And I want you to see these in your Bible so you can underline them and bookmark them and highlight them. Psalm 46, probably you could quote this one as well if, if I started, uh, once you start reading it. Psalm 46, verse 10, the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. You know what be still means? It means you need to rest. You need to rest. You're so restless. Your mind is working ceaselessly. You are trying to do everything that you think you need to do. But right now, the best thing you can do is stop and rest and let God be God. So we hear these kind of verses all throughout the Bible. Regarding waiting, we find Isaiah 40. Regarding trusting, Proverbs 3. Regarding resting, Psalm 46. And there are dozens of verses that you could put under these headings along with these more famous ones. There are, these are obviously well-known verses and we're all familiar with them coming at us in different seasons of life in the situations when the last thing we want to do is trust the process, wait on God's timing, rest while God does all the work. It's in this tension it's in these valleys that we have a massive, crucial decision to make. The prophet Joel talks about this. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, day of the Lord in the Bible refers to, some, to a big moment in our life. A moment when we have, to, we have a big decision to make and God's about to make a move. God's going to do something. But the way we receive God's move, the way we experience what God is doing is dependent on the decision that we make. The stakes are so high in these valleys of decisions when we have to make a choice. Am I going to wait? Am I going to trust? Am I going to rest? You may not think the stakes are high, but they absolutely are because there is a peace and power we can unlock and take hold of if we choose to wait on and trust in and rest in God's promises. But there are severe consequences if we bail, if we take a shortcut, if we brute force our way, if we get so hung up on knowing every little detail that we refuse to take another step forward in the waiting. More often than not, we are at a crossroads in our stories. We don't know the rest of the story, and that bothers us. It unsettles us. It makes us unwell. God says, rest, and we say, how can I? I need to know the rest of the story. But what happens when the author of the story doesn't want us to know the rest of the story? Have you ever thought about that? What happens when the author of the story, when the author of your story doesn't want you to know the rest of the story, he simply asks you to wait and trust and rest in him. Well, we've got two options if that's the case. We either wait and breathe and seek out the peace of God in the valley, or we do none of that and we get so worked up and become so restless that we make decisions and choices that we're going to end up regretting. Not because we do something bad necessarily, but because when we don't wait and don't trust and don't rest, we ultimately betray our place in our relationship with God. We say to God, I don't like the dynamic of our relationship. We go off and try to do his job in some lesser, inferior way. We go out and seek what he doesn't want us to know more often than not. 99% of the time, we end up with some kind of regret. Trying to get control of the situation, we lose control of everything. So here's what we're going to do to land this conversation. We're going to look at a couple of stories or a few stories in the Bible where, where people are at these crossroads. And, they see, and we're going to see how they handled them, two of them very poorly, 
And we're going to see how, we're going to learn how definitely they could have taken a better approach and how they certainly lost something due to their impatience and due to their restlessness. So first up is the story of Esau, and that is found in Genesis 25. So as you find your way there, let me set up the story for you. Most of you know the, story, the, the character Esau because he's a, a side character or in the background of the story of Jacob. But maybe you didn't know that the story was not supposed to be uh, about Jacob. The story was supposed to be all about Esau. Did you not? Maybe you didn't know that Esau was supposed to be the main character of not only his generation, but many generations to come. Esau and Jacob were twins, some sons of Isaac and Rebekah, grandsons of Abraham and Sarah. We know in hindsight it's this family that God was going to change the world through, begin a nation through, and get the ball rolling on the redemption story with. Uh, we also know that in this third generation uh, that, that God was actually going to begin to build this nation. Because we know that Jacob receives the name Israel, and it's through Jacob that the nation of Israel is truly born. But if you read the backstory, Esau was born first of the two twins. Therefore, he had the natural blessing and birthright to carry on from his family. And he had the promise given to him or passed to him from his father and from his grandfather. And jumping right into Genesis 25, verse 27 and 28, it's very clear that Esau had everything going his way to see this through to fruition. It says, as the, boy, as the boys grew, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a mild man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved or favored Jacob because he was, he was a mama's boy. So clearly Esau was the one going to carry the baton forward. He was a man's man. He was his father's favorite. He was going to be the chosen of the two. And if God was going to start a nation between two of these, Esau was the obvious favorite. Now, in these days, a birthright was mostly symbolic, but it could be transferred in rare instances. Nobody would, even, would ever really want to transfer it, but in the event of unforeseen circumstances, both the father and the son had the power to give it away. If the son misbehaved in some egregious way that it shamed the family, the father could revoke it, which sometimes but rarely happened. If the son came into financial hardship or a personal crisis, he could give it to the next of kin or sell it to the next of kin. But, but, but just like you, you, you could do an inheritance to a sibling, you would really never want to do this unless it was your only option. It would take a dire situation to break the glass on that option. If a son ever got to a bad place, most likely his father would bail him out. So Esau would never have to worry about this because he was the apple of his father's eye. He could do no wrong in his father's eyes. And if he ever got himself in a mess, his dad was going to be there to save the day. So that is what makes this story all the more tragic and what reveals how far off Esau's heart was from where it should have been could have been from his youth he had been told Esau you're the chosen one one day the history books of our people will tell how God did an amazing work it began with Abraham it continued with with Isaac and it will be christened or cemented by you Esau one day the history books will read long ago the God of Abraham Isaac and Esau Esau your name's going to be enshrined forever And little did they know, it wasn't just the history books. It was the book that's on more shelves and in more hands than any other book. So so I, I know, I know you're all dying to know what happens next. Maybe dying to a little bit of hyperbole, but speaking of wild exaggerations, Esau is the one who makes, who makes an outlandish claim in this passage and is willing to sell his birthright over it now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary he was famished Esau said to Jacob please feed me with the same red stew for I am weary therefore his name or he was also called Edom because Edom means red but Jacob said sell me your birthright as of this day and Esau said look I'm about to die so what is this birthright to me or what good is it to me now Esau wasn't about to die he was just being dramatic But Jacob exploits him. He says, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And probably they went to a lawyer's office and he had it legally transitioned from him to the other. 
because it was a serious thing to talk about your birthright in any small capacity. So Jacob gave Esau a bread and a stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised, and it doesn't mean he hated it, it just means he didn't respect it. It just means that Esau cared more about his belly than he did about this calling on his life. He cared more about his impulsiveness, his, his impulses, than he did this calling in this gift. Now, that's kind of a lighthearted story, but it's a very serious one. It has serious implications if you read the rest of the story. Was Esau about to die? Of course not. He was impatient and careless and failed to value something that meant way more to him than getting his belly full. So let me just say this. The world out there is not neutral. There is an enemy who wants to see you cash in and throw away the sacred purity, purpose, and opportunities that God has put in you and promised you. I know you don't want to live in a world where you think, man, there's, there's, there's evil around every corner, but, but here's the thing. There is an enemy out there who wants to see you cash in and throw away the sacred purity, purpose, and opportunity that God has put in your soul. So if I can say with the most, with the utmost concern and care for all of us, don't take the bait. It's never worth it. You may feel up against the wall. You may see the allure and it may seem like ever, exactly what you need and what you deserve. If it costs you of something of eternal value, if it costs you integrity, your potential, if it risks taking away from you something that your family and your future relationship with God is dependent on that you legit might not be able to get back, it's never worth it. All Esau had to do was breathe and pray and think and just process this. But no, he was impatient. He was impulsive. He was reckless. And he lost more than he could ever imagine. Because as it would play out, the history of Israel, the scriptures of Israel in our own faith, look back on the work that God started with Abraham. And just like this instance, when God revealed himself to Moses, where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That could have said Esau. It should have said Esau. If not for his impulsive reaction to his flesh. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But alas, Esau didn't consider the rest of the story when he sold out. And we never do either, do we? Right. When you make a decision in the here and now, in the moment, when you say something you shouldn't say and do something you shouldn't do, and go, when, when, you, when you make an impulsive decision that makes you feel good in the moment, you never think about the rest of the story. You don't care about the rest of the story. You just care about making sure your gut gets what it wants, right? Turn over now to 1 Kings 19 for another quick story that's not quite as tragic, but equally as important. Here we find Elijah, the prophet, wrestling with a wrestling, restless heart. He was a mighty prophet, bold, who stood up against the king of Israel, Ahab, who was a pagan, who brought idol worship into the land. God worked many wonders through Elijah's life. Famously, Elijah faced off against Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Fire came down from heaven and proved that Elijah's God was the one true God of Israel. We all know those stories very well. Elijah is a hero because of those stories. But maybe you don't know about the next story that took place in his life. Elijah comes running down the mountain full of energy and confidence. He's bold and he's expecting revival to sweep over the land. Rain is falling for the first time in three years. He, is, he can see the work of God over the land. He knows that people are going to hear about Elijah and about the boldness and the fire. And they're going to fall on their face and turn toward God and celebrate him for what he did. But he comes down the mountain. And he finds out that the people of Israel are still worshiping idols. And he finds out that Ahab and his wife Jezebel have put a price on his head. And they're leading the nation in full rebellion against God. And they won't stop until Elijah is dead. At least that's their word. 
Elijah hears this and he's instantly drained. It's like going out of church, the best service in your life, and as soon as you walk out, a phone call comes through or something comes to your attention that crushes you. Elijah is thinking nothing can bring me down. He goes down the mountain and he gets the news that they're trying to kill him and they have no remorse and the people haven't even budged from their idols. So Elijah goes into a state of panic, overcome with emotions. He wonders if he'd be better off dead. Disregarding his calling that God had put on him and all that God had done in his life, Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 4. It says, he, went into, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom or a juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, Elijah, not to make light of this, he's, he's very depressed. He's, he's at a very bad place, but he's really having a pity party because he's mad that his great you know, work on the mountain isn't being recognized. And he feels like, well, if that doesn't get their attention, nothing will. And he begins to turn inward. He begins to become very short-sighted and think, well, if, if, if that didn't change the nation, I mean, nobody's ever done what I just did on Mount Carmel. I called fire down from heaven and it destroyed the prophets and it destroyed their idols. God, if that didn't change their hearts, I don't even have a purpose here anymore. He lay down and he went to sleep under a broom tree and suddenly an angel arose, uh, touched him and said, arise and eat. Because the, here's, the, here's the problem with Elijah. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's thinking recklessly. You need to eat, Elijah. You need to rest. You're, you're tired. You're, you're, your mind is going 100 miles an hour. You need to slow down, Elijah. This is not all on your shoulders. You're not God. This is not your job to save the nation. You're just a messenger. Quit trying to bear that kind of weight. But then he arose and he arose and he looked and there by his head was a cake on, on coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. Translation, Elijah, the, your life, this journey, you've got to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Just because this chapter of your story is full of uncertainty, don't forget what God did in the previous chapters. Remember whenever, you, whenever there was a famine for three years and you went into Syria and lived and you performed miracles and you led people to the Lord? Remember on Mount Carmel when God spoke through you? God, Elijah, just because this chapter is off to a bumpy start and they're trying to kill you and you're discouraged and it's not going well, doesn't mean that God's not still in control. You've done what I've asked you to do. You just got to wait it out and not panic just because it's not instantly getting better. How many times do we do just what Elijah did? We pray on Monday and on Tuesday things get worse. And we're thinking, I'm never doing that again. We go to church and we begin to be more devoted. We read our Bibles more. We pray more. We're being, trying to lead our families into serving the Lord more. And then we hit a few bumps in the road and we question why we're doing any of it. Happens all the time, doesn't it? Elijah takes the cake and eats it. He goes back to sleep. But after this, he gets up and he disregards everything that the angel just said. Look at verse 8. He rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. He goes to Mount Sinai, way, oh, halfway to Egypt. So here's what Elijah's going through. He thinks, hey, I'm the only one left worshiping God. Nobody is as holy as me. And if Moses got to see God on Mount Sinai, which is where they thought God lived, right? If Moses got to see God, I should get to see God, and I've got a thing or two to say to him when I get there. So Elijah runs or takes a chariot through the desert. Verse 9, he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Wouldn't this be demoralizing? You go halfway across the world because you think God's going to be there. And God says, Why are you here? I could have prayed. You could have prayed to me under that tree. I literally sent an angel to bake a cake for you. You don't think I could hear you there? Why are you here, Elijah? Now, Elijah was there to stick his chest out. Elijah was there to give God a word or two. God knew why he was there, but he wanted him to say it out loud. 
So he says that in verse 10. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. God, have you heard the news? I'm the only believer left in the world. And they're trying to kill me. I think I should get a little special attention, God. Don't, don't you think? I mean, God, did you see what I did on Mount Carmel? Pretty nice, wasn't it? And God's thinking, of course I saw it. You wouldn't have been able to do it without me. But you can see Elijah, he's hurt, he's upset, he's overwhelmed. So verse 11, he says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And Elijah's thinking, oh my goodness, I'm about to see the glory of God like Moses never even got a glimpse of. And it says that the Lord passed by and a great strong and wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And then the wind, after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So Elijah's thinking, wow, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. But God's not in any of those natural disasters or those natural things. He's in a whisper. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've got a speech. I'll repeat it. I've been very zealous for the Lord because of the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Here's what he's saying. God. I think I deserve to know what's going on behind the scenes. I need to know the rest of the story. So God says, you want to know more? You want to know how it's going to work out? Okay, Elijah, just sit down. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Verse 15. The Lord said, go and return to your, on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazel, king over Syria. Anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Oh, Elijah, you want to know what's going on? You want to know what's going on behind the scenes? I can tell you what's going to happen. I can tell you who's going to be the next king of Syria, the next king of Judah, the next king of Israel. I've even got your replacement ready. Elijah all of a sudden starts getting a little bit shorter, feels a little bit smaller. Whoa, 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 you, you, you mean I'm not, the only, I'm not the only one that believes in you? He says, also, Elijah, verse 18, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel who, whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that have not kissed him. Elijah, you're their prophet and they're hiding in fear of their lives because you are down here in Sinai having a pity party because you don't know all the details of the story that's not your story to tell or to write. Elijah, go back home and do your job. And just leave the story up to me to write. God says, Elijah, I'm prepared. I'm in control. I've already got your replacement picked out. There's 7,000 people that are back home waiting for their prophet who's down here having some self-righteous fit. So what Elijah learns is that God had a plan. He refused to rest in God's sovereignty and insisted on knowing the rest of the story right now, have we ever been there? Yes, we have. What did knowing the story gain him? It made him aware of his own days being numbered. And what good did that information do to him? It only took away the joy he could have found in every moment. But instead, he had to live his days out knowing that, hey, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already being replaced. If only Elijah had trusted the same God who wrote chapter 17 and 18, he would have not panicked when 19 wasn't going the way he hoped it would go. God knew the rest of the story all along. Did Elijah really need to know? No. How much better would it have been if he just simply rested in God? Working it all out. One last turn of our Bible is to Luke chapter 4. The story of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. 
The same temptation that Elijah struggled with, that Esau struggled with, that we struggle with, Jesus came up against in the desert. Luke 4, the gospel says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward he came. When they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up to a high place, high mountain, showed him all the kingdom of the world in the moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you in their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I've said this before, but Jesus could have turned those stones into bread, and nobody would have ever known. But you know what? he would have never forgotten that he did it. He would have never forgotten that he took a counterfeit option instead of waiting on God to provide. Likewise, we all know that Jesus was set to inherit a throne above all thrones, a crown greater than any other crown, but he would do so, he would redeem the world by way of a cross, not by taking a shortcut that allowed him to bypass the cross. In the same way, the next temptation speaks to this too. In verses 9, he brings him up to, to Jerusalem and put, set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. He will give his angels charge over you to keep you. In their hands they shall be, bear you up unless you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus could have manipulated God's hand in order to gain a massive following from this spectacle, but he refused to back God into a corner. So don't you see, when we're struggling with waiting and trusting and resting, these are our same options. Counterfeits to God's perfect blessing and plan for our life are dangled in front of us. Shortcuts to our desired destinations are brought in front of us. Manipulation seems like a viable, justifiable option to us. Because in these valleys of waiting where our impatience gets the best of us, our impulses rise. We want to know the rest of the story right now. We won't rest until we know every last detail or obtain proof. Every single day, every single season, we are tempted like Esau, like Elijah, like Jesus. Single people, married people, poor people, rich people, dream jobs, difficult jobs. We're all tempted morally, financially, spiritually. But what do we gain when we cash in? we actually lose a whole lot what do we get out of knowing that what we're not supposed to know it actually ruins the moment and takes something away from the experience what good comes from counterfeits and shortcuts and manipulations nothing good that's what in our country labor day is supposed to be a day of rest for christians sunday is traditionally a day of rest but as you know rest is not found in a day rest is found in god the sabbath day is a symbol to the jews and to us that god can provide when we fall short the sabbath was always about pointing to the lord of the sabbath jesus says i am the lord of the sabbath and he says to us come to me the entire ministry of jesus is him saying don't go to religion don't go to that thing or that place don't look to those things as your source of hope come to me Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If the only rest your faith gives you is a couple hours a week, that is not rest like Jesus can give you. I'm talking about the rest that your mind can experience, the rest that your soul can feel, the rest that, come, that brings about trust and that brings about the ability to wait on God that doesn't just lose control and that doesn't have short fuses whenever things don't seem to go like you would have them to go. When the Bible says trust and wait and rest, it says come to Jesus 
Hebrews 12 says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, some who made good decisions, some who made bad, let us lay aside every way in every sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So this Labor Day, let's learn to rest in what God has done and let, let that remind us that he's still got work to do, but we can trust him. We don't have to know. We don't need to know every little detail, but we can wait as hard as it is to accept sometimes. We can, we, we will be okay. Maybe we'll be more than okay. Maybe we'll be better off if we wait with unanswered questions because it will cause us to trust in and rest in and wait on him. If Jesus is both Lord and Savior, if he is who the Bible says he is and he loves us like he says he does and has done for us like he has done, why wouldn't we rest in him? Why wouldn't we leave the rest of the story in his nail-scarred hands? That's a question we should ask every time we think about taking a shortcut. Every time we think about taking a counterfeit solution to our problems. Every time we think about trying to force God's hand to do what we think it should do instead of waiting on what he says we should do. Every time our tongue gets the best of us, every time our feet begin going in a direction that they should not go in, we should ask the question, if Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, why shouldn't we rest in him? Why shouldn't we leave the rest of the story in his nail-scarred hands? He's proved that God's ways are higher. Sometimes God's ways look lower, but they're always taking us somewhere higher. So why should we worry? Why should we panic? Why should we be afraid when we can rest and trust and wait on the Lord? He promises he will come through always. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise that your word gives us that we can rest in you. When our minds are racing and we just need to know the answers right now and we're desperate for something to make sense to us, when we're, when we're tempted to walk away from home or walk away from a situation and turn towards some alternative path because it just doesn't make sense and it's just not going to work out the way we see it. Lord, help us to trust that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. We can trust in and rest in his nail-scarred hands. We don't have to know the rest of the story right now because we can rest in the one who's writing it and the one who has the best plan for us. Lord, help us to find this comfort today and help us to have this peace that the word promises us today. In Jesus' name.